this is lesson number three of Resurrection of the Dead, our three-part series, so this is three of three. Um, tonight's class is being dedicated in loving memory of Bobby Wishnev, who was a, uh, a, uh, a dear friend from Pittsburgh, passed away a few years ago, and uh, this class is dedicated in Bobby's honor. Okay, um, so we begin with with the, the title of today's class. The title of today's class is called Quantum Leap. Um, quantum Leap, and we're going to talk about the, the notion of building and past successes to achieve something even greater than before and how that works. So I'll tell you this right off the bat. Um, I will tell you this, that you are all in for a treat tonight. Like we do in many of the courses, we've saved the best for last. You know, like, yeah, lesson one is great, lesson two is awesome, but, le but the last class, forget about it. This is like where all the good stuff gets consolidated. Everything is good, but this is like we end with a bang. So throughout this course, we've explored topics related to the resurrection of the dead. We spoke about the, um, uh, the fact that the resurrection of the dead is a f foundational idea in Judaism. Um, we spoke about how um, uh, we, we, sp we spoke about the meaning of resurrection, the purpose of the resurrection, and we've also detailed some of the elements of the process of the resurrection of the dead. And at the core, what is this belief? What is this 13th principle of faith? It is that at some point in the Messianic era, souls will come back into bodies. In lesson one, we spoke about the great debate between Maimonides and Nachmanides. We're not going to re rehash that here, but. The, the, the accepted opinion is that at some point in the Messianic era, there's going to be the resurrection of the dead, which means that all of those whom we've loved and lost will come back. So our relatives, our loved ones, the great giants of the past, the patriarchs and matriarchs, Moses, etc., King David, King Solomon, everyone's going to come back in bodies. And how is it going to happen? Last week I, uh, we threw this in there in the context of the super rational, supernatural um, process of resurrection. We said that, that, according to Talmud, there's a bone in the body called the lose bone. Everyone has it. We're all losers. Did I say that last week? I meant to, if not. Anyway, we've all got the lose bone. And uh, it's this, that was a joke. I mean, no, it's not a joke. Okay. So we all have this lose bone, and, the, and it says in, in the good sources that there's a dew of resurrection that will be, that will moisten this bone that cannot otherwise be destroyed. And from that, it ferments, so to speak, in a good way. It, uh, it builds into, it rebuilds the body, regenerates the body. Okay, and then, and then the reunion. Um, uh, oh, David. David thought the bone was floating around because it was loose. Loose, loose, loose bone. Okay, good, excellent. That is a man of my own humor. Excellent. So, and, and we'll be reunited. We'll meet our loved ones and the giants of the past face to face. And that's the way it's going to be for all eternity. Why? As the prophet says, Because death will be eradicated from the face of the earth. And that will be it. Eternal life for all and forever. It sounds pretty fantastical. It sounds fantastic, but it also sounds a bit fantastical as well. But amidst the unusual and unfamiliar terrain of the resurrection, there is one detail that stands out amongst the others, a detail that we have not yet mentioned. This detail, again, the whole resurrection of the dead is out there. 
It's a foundational Jewish belief, but it, it stretches the mind, it stretches the imagination. But there's one detail that's even perhaps more outlandish, if we were to use such a word, than everything else. And it's a detail that we're going to focus on tonight. And once we get to the bottom of this puzzling paradox, an incredible truth will be revealed. A truth that has the power to radically shift the trajectory of our lives here and now. My friends, this is an epic discussion. This is an epic conversation. So let's begin. I want to start with a question. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a curious question. It's not a challenging question. It's a curious question, and it's open to everybody. So get your finger. I think I muted everybody. Get your trigger finger ready on the mute button or on the unmute button so that you can jump in to answer the question. This is going to be a poll question. It's either yes or no, I think. Hopefully, I'll, I'll, I'll phrase it as a yes or no question. Okay, it's a yes or no question, and you don't have to be super qualified, you know, you don't have to have any background information to answer the question. It's a question, what do you think? All right, so here's the question. So we spoke about the resurrection being a time when all of those who have passed on will come back to life. Great. But here's my question. At the time of the resurrection, what happens, are you with me? What happens to those people who are, st who are alive? You with me? The people who are living, who are alive at the time of the resurrection. What happens to them? Do they just segue into this eternal life of the resurrection era? Or is there some sort of process that must happen? Do they live on? Or is there some other process that happens? So, if, I guess it's not a yes or no question. So, if you think the people that are alive at the time of the resurrection just live on... Say, okay, maybe yes. Say yes. Yes. Okay. If you believe that some, something else has to happen, say no. No. All right. So we have two people that are weighing in. Okay, good. All right. Fantastic. Listen, not everybody wants to put themselves out there. It's vulnerable to answer, right? It's a whole thing. So, yes, mom. I, I also wanted to say yes. I was raising my hand. Oh God! Okay, okay. Sorry, I, w I was looking at honestly. I was looking at the um, at the. Gr I have a green dot by my camera, so I'm just I'm focused. It's got me mesmerized. I'm looking at the green dot. Um, okay, so that is that is right. That is my question. My question is: Does the person who's alive at the time of the resurrection do they keep on living, or is there another process? Here is the good news. The good news is that you and I do not need to speculate about this. We do not need to come up with theories. We, don't, we do not need to come up with, um, with whatever it is. Why? Because straight up, it's straight up a, a, a piece of Zohar. It's straight up wrought in Kabbalah. So what I want to do now is, hold on, give me a second here. What I want to do is pull up the text. And we're going to read it together. Let me get this ready for you on my side. This is going to be text number one from the Zohar. This is from Kabbalah. And what a great source to begin. Um, I'm going to share my screen so you... Oh, hold on a second. Let's add some more people in. Okay, here we go. Sharing the screen. And let's ask... Um, let's ask Alex. Alex, please jump in. 
to text number one. Until the redemption, death is a result of negative forces. From then on, it is as the verse states, only God will give life and death. This teaches us that in that time, concerning all those who have not yet tasted death, God will give them a taste and immediately revive them. Listen to this, Zohar. So listen to this. Thank you, Alex. Listen to this. The Zohar says that until the time of Mashiach and the resurrection, death is a product of negativity. But in the Messianic era, at the time of the resurrection of the dead, there will be another role to death. Death is not going to be the result of negative forces, but rather God will give those who have not yet tasted death a taste of death and immediately revive them. Now, I will tell you what is the proof text. So there's a verse that's quoted, and I am like, the translation here is actually throwing us off because the verse here is translated as only God will give life and death. That proves nothing about, about uh, the person needing to die and then be revived. But if you look in the Hebrew, if you can read the Hebrew, it's the second line of the Hebrew text. It's actually Aramaic, but it quotes a Hebrew verse. It says, Ani amit The verse says, Ani I, I God, amit, cause death, and bring back to life. So this is the proof text for the Zohar to say that God is promising that in the future, even those who are still alive, God says, I will cause them to die and then bring them back to life. In other words, let me state this very simply. I ask you a simple question. When the resurrection of the death, when the resurrection of the dead happens, all those who have passed on will come back to life. What about the people currently alive? Will they just transition in? The answer is no. They will not transition in. No. They're going to pass away, even for a moment, and then be brought back to life. Okay, before we explore this as to the, the question as to why, let's, let me, I, I want to bring you another, another text about this. The Talmud has a very interesting conversation. We're now going to segue from the Zohar, which is a Kabbalistic source, to a Talmudic source. The Talmud talks about the decomposition of the body in the grave. Yeah, what happens when you put what happens when you put a body in the grave? Yeah, it decomposes. So the Talmud says that that's not the case for everybody. In fact, says the Talmud, tzaddikim the righteous, their bodies do not decompose. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of this. Yeah? Okay. So the Talmud says that the righteous tzaddikim, righteous tzaddikim, their bodies remain in the ground. And it brings stories. Stories of corpses, of great tzaddikim who were found the remains were found intact. There are anecdotally other stories in modern times also of this, which I don't want to get into right now because it's going to take us for, uh, too far off track. But um, suffice to say that this is what the Talmud teaches. So now I want to share my screen with you and pull up the following text. Okay, this is from Safaria. This is Resurrection of the Dead Lesson 3. I put the source sheet together from Tractate Shabbat 152b. 
I'm going to read this story. Okay, let's go. Can, can you all see it? Thumbs up if you can see it. Yes, it's coming through. Yes, I see yeah. some head nods. Okay, great. The Talmud, Gemara is Talmud, right? The Talmud... Oh, hold on. It's, uh, it's bumping up over here. The Talmud cites a related story, related to the point that the righteous do not decompose in the ground. The diggers who were digging in Rav Nachman's land. So there was a rabbi, Rav Nachman. He had a piece of land. And there were people who were digging. Why were they digging? I don't know. They were putting in a garden. They were putting in a retaining wall. They were digging on his property. And they didn't know there was a grave there. They came up on a grave. And whose grave was it? It turns out it was, I guess, an unmarked grave of Rav Achai Bar Yoshia. Rav Achai Bar Yoshia. That was, the, that was the rabbi's name who was buried in Rav Nachman's land. Who was buried there. Oh, so in Rav, Na, Rav Achai Bar, Bar, Bar Yoshia, who was buried there, rebuked them. Rebuked the diggers who were digging in the land. They came and said to Rav Nachman, a deceased person just rebuked us. Now, can you imagine the diggers, right? They thought they were just digging. Meanwhile, what happens? They come up on, uh, on, a, uh, on, on a corpse that's talking, a talking corpse. Now, you might think this might be the curious tales of the Talmud, the last course that we did, right? But, but it's related to the resurrection of the dead, which we'll see in a moment. Rav Nachman came. So the diggers came back to the house like, Rabbi, you hired us to dig, but you didn't tell us to expect talking corpses. So the rabbi comes out and said to the person buried there, who is the master? What is your name? Who are you? He said to him, the corpse said to the rabbi, I am Achai Bar Yoshia. I mean, we knew that because the Talmud told us that in the story, but this is how the rabbi found out. Rav Nachman said to him, how has your body been preserved? Didn't Rav Mari say that the righteous will turn to dust? So there's an opinion that says, no, the righteous will turn to dust. Rav Achai said to him, and who is Mari, whom I do not know? <laughs> like, who's this guy that said, um, uh, that said the righteous will turn to dust? I don't know, I don't know uh, Mari. Oh, I have to decompose because this rabbi said that the righteous decompose? I don't know him. I don't need to listen to him. Why, as the commentaries say, why should I be concerned about what he says? So Rav Nachman said to him, said to the corpse, even without Rav Mari's statement, there's an explicit verse of which is, written, which is written, and the dust will return to the earth as it was. It says in Kohelet, it says in Ecclesiastes, that when you lay a person to rest, the dust returns, because the human being was originally created from dust, and they return to dust, so they return to the earth. That means decomposing, into becoming once again reunited with the earth from whence the body came. So you're not listening to scripture. Forget Mari. Forget that rabbi. What about scripture? Rav Achai, the corpse, again, this is Rav Nachman speaking to a corpse. So the corpse, Rav Achai said to him, whoever taught you the book of Ecclesiastes did not teach you the book of Proverbs. <laughs> you quote one verse from one book. You got to look at the broader range of, of scripture. For it is written in Proverbs, a tranquil heart is the flesh of the life. Sorry, is the life of the flesh. But envy is the rotting of the bones. That's Proverbs 14. This means that anyone who has envy in his heart during his lifetime, his bones rot in the grave. And anyone who does not have envy in his heart, his bones do not rot. In other words, 
In Proverbs, it clarifies what it said in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes says that everyone must return to the dust. But in Proverbs, it clarifies and says that only refers to those who were filled, or not filled, who experienced envy in their lives. Call she'ain like kinna belibai ain of markivim. Whoever has ne- whoever does not experience jealousy or envy in his heart, their bones do not rot. Are you with me so far in the story? Yes. I'm gonna scroll through everybody. Yes. You guys nod if you got this. So all right, good. Hey Jules. Hey Stanley. Good to see you guys. All right. Awesome. Good. 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 Let's continue the story. All right, Rav Nachman touched him. Okay, now it gets interesting. Rav Nachman touched him and saw that he had substance. Because, like, he wanted to make sure that it wasn't an illusion, a mirage, you know, the usual thing that you do when you encounter a talking corpse that claims to be still intact. You touch it just to make sure that you're feeling it correctly. Rav Nachman said to him, after touching him, let the master arise and come into my house. Listen, Rav Achai, if we're having a schmooze and your body is still intact, so why don't you just come come in for some tea and biscuits. Let's have a schmooze and a fabrengen. Rav Achai said to him, you have revealed that you have not even studied prophets and not just the writings of which you were ignorant. He says, look, there's more. There's more scripture that you don't know, Rav Nachman. This corpse has been laying on the ground for a while, and it is not mincing any words. Okay, that's the bottom line. I guess you have nothing to lose when you're in the ground. So this corpse is like, Rav Nachman, clearly you are not familiar with the books of the the Nevi'im, the books of the prophets. Um, For it is written in Ezekiel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open open up your graves and lift you up from your graves, my nation. As long as the dead have not been been instructed to leave their graves, leaving of their own accord is prohibited. It says clearly in Ezekiel that God is the one who will open the graves and lift you up. That's a reference, by the way. To the resurrection of the dead. In, ca- in case you were wondering what Ezekiel 37, 13 means, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open up your graves and lift you up from your graves, yeah, that's referring to the resurrection of the dead. But Rev Achai is telling Rev Nachman, who just invited him for some tea in his house, he said, Rabbi, I don't go until I get the call, not from you, but from God. I can't just unilaterally decide to bounce out of the grave. Rev Nachman, all right, the story's not done yet. Are you kidding me? We ju- we're, just, we're just pulling in to the, to the main part here of why, why we're quoting this. Rav Nachman once again asked Rav Achai about the preservation of the flesh. He still was bothered by the fact that he had not decomposed in the ground. And he said to him, the rabbi said to the rabbi who was the corpse, he said, but it is written in Genesis, for you are dust and you shall return to dust. So why has your body not turned into dust? You can't argue against Genesis 3. So Rav Achai, this is the final piece of the conversation. The last utterance of dialogue, Rav Achai, who was now the corpse, said to the Rav Nachman, the rabbi, he said to him, that verse applies to the righteous one hour before the resurrection of the dead so that they too may be created anew. The verse that says that everybody will return to dust. So what do you do about the righteous who weren't jealous, whose bodies don't decompose? They will decompose one hour before the resurrection.
So what do we see from here? First of all, I thought you'd, you'd enjoy that story. It's a very, very compelling story. Number two, it has a profound message for our conversation. Because what we see here from this story in the Talmud is that the bodies of the righteous that remained intact for decades, centuries, millennia, one hour before the resurrection, they have to decompose only to be rebuilt again? It's crazy. It's mashuga. It doesn't make sense. If the body survived, why would it be destroyed to be rebuilt? Let it stay on. Are you with me what I just said? You with me on my question? Let me ask you some questions now. The Zohar said, it's the same question, but I'm going to ask it now. The Zohar said, Kabbalah teaches that those who are alive at the time of the resurrection will die and then be resurrected. The Talmud says that those who have passed away, but whose bodies never decomposed, will decompose one hour before the resurrection and then be resurrected. And my question, which I hope is your question, is why? Farvaja, what's the point? What's the point? You're taking a live person, putting the, not put it, taking their life to bring them back? It doesn't make any sense. And the body that hasn't decomposed, you're going to decompose the body and then bring it back one hour before the resurrection? It doesn't make any sense. What's the utility? If the person's alive, if the body's around, why destroy it? Why cause its demise? before the resurrection. Why in the world would life need to be transformed to death only to be transformed back into life? It doesn't make sense. If you tell me that those who are gone, you tell me that those who are decomposed, in order for them to come back, they need resurrection. That's one thing. But you tell me that those who are still alive those whose bodies never decomposed, that they need to die and decompose? Why? That's the question we're at right now. This is what I told you at the beginning of the class. This is the paradox, the great paradox. Yeah, we can talk about how wondrous it is, how super rational it is, which we spoke last week about the super rational elements. You could speak about the loose bone and the timing of it and the purpose of it. You could speak about all of these things from today to tomorrow. But explain this paradox. The resurrection of the dead is all about bringing people to life. But those that are already living have to die and then come back. Those whose bodies don't, do not need to be rebuilt because they never decomposed. They have to rot and then be rebuilt. Doesn't make any sense. Are you with me on the question? Yes? Okay. Good. So, to understand this paradox... To resolve these questions, we're going to turn to a completely unrelated topic. A completely unrelated topic. And the topic is investing. Investing. I'll tell you this, you didn't expect that, did you, right? You didn't expect investing to come up right now. So I'm going to ask a question and unmute yourself if you know the answer. What is compound interest? Somebody give me a basic definition of what compound interest is. 
Go the jump. Interest that you earn also earns interest. Oh, very well stated. I like it. A one-liner. The interest that you earn also earns interest. So let's say, let's give a simple example. Let's say you're getting, let's, let's use a, 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 an easy number, 10% interest, right? So let's say you put in $100, and every year you get 10%. So year one, you would get $10, so that's $110 that you have now. Year two, you get 10% of $110, so you get $11. Aha! So you're getting more interest because you're getting interest on top of your interest. Correct? Yes? All right. Yeah. To make sure that we all got this, I'm going to share my screen. Why? Because, as you all know, sharing is caring. And I want to show you a bit of a chart over here. Right? Very, very simple chart. You start off with $100. I'm sorry for the fact that it's a little bit fuzzy. I'm doing my best over here with the, uh, with the, with the PDF. You have $100. Then you have $110. And then you have the $10 um, 110, 10% is 11, so now you have $121. And then year number four, your interest, man, after, for, for $121, it's going to be $12.10. So it keeps, the interest keeps on growing as the interest grows. That's the way it is. Take a look at this chart. Here is an even a greater example of this. Right, where you start off with a certain amount of principal, and every year, if you add a little bit to the principal, the yeah, the interest is the interest is um, is growing exponentially. Why? Because you're adding a little bit to the you're adding to the investment, and plus the interest keeps on building, keeps on compounding on itself. So you see there in year I think that says forty. In year forty, you go from whatever this is. That's two hundred thousand right there. So you only reach two hundred thousand in year. 22, I guess 23, year 23-ish. Um, but by year six, by year 40, you're already up to 800,000. You see how the curve goes up very sharply as the years go by. It builds on itself. Simply put, it's interest on interest. Okay, very simple. Now, what is the key to compound interest? You know what the key is? The key is you don't pull out the money. Correct? You with me on this? Yeah, what happens if you pull out, uh, pull out the money? Then you're, not, then you're not building on anything. The whole point of building, right, or the, whole, the, the, the way building on your investment works with the interest is that you maintain your investment and the interest keeps on building. What happens if you pull out the money? Well, then you don't have anything left. There's no interest to build. There's no principle to, to, to build off of. And you don't have the interest either on top of the principle to build off. So the whole... Even if you pull out the interest, it's no good. If you pull out the interest, right. So you're still getting the interest on the principal, but you're not building the compound interest on top of the interest because you're pulling it out. Good. So this is not just a, a specific example with regards to investing. It's really an example for life itself. And why is it an example for life itself? Because growth happens when we build on what was there prior. Right? Growth, by definition, means that you take what was there and you build on top of it. Right? Whether we're talking about money, where you take money and you build on top of that money and add money, add, that's how money grows. Whether it's education, right? you have 
and education, you know certain things, and you keep on learning, you keep on growing in wisdom. Or buildings, you take a building and you add a floor on top, on top, on top. So growth is all about building on what was there prior. You don't want to take away what was prior because then you're not growing. You maintain what you had and you build on top of it and that's how we grow. And you might be thinking, Rabbi, you're literally talking like, like, a, like, like you're explaining to a five-year-old. Obviously, growth means that you're building on what was there and you're not taking away. Good, as long as we're on the same page, because I'm about to show you a text that's going to challenge everything about this. And the text comes from the Talmud. This text is a very challenging text. It's very difficult to understand, and it's going to serve as the basis for our big idea in tonight's class. I'm going to share my screen with you once again and read to you the following Talmudic account. Okay, here we go. Text number two. Actually, you know what? I'm not going to read it. Donna, if you don't mind, Donna, please read text number two from the Talmud. When Rabbi Zira ascended from Babylonia to the land of Israel, he fasted 100 fasts so that he would forget the Babylonian method of studying the Talmud so that it would not hinder him. So here's what happens. There's this rabbi, Rabbi Zira, who grows up in Babylonia. He is one of the great sages of the Babylonian Talmud and he moves to Israel. So you need to know this, background information. There are two versions of the Talmud which we have to this very day. There is what is called, appropriately, the Babylonian Talmud. And then there's what we call the Jerusalem Talmud. There's the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, and the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud. Two different versions of the Talmud. Okay? So what happens? This rabbi is traveling from, this rabbi is moving from Babylonia to Jerusalem, and he fasts a hundred fasts. And what's the point of the hundred fasts? The point is, the point is, to, uh, hold on one second, I'm looking at the chats here. I'm, I'm, getting, uh, I'm getting notifications about the chat. Let me see what's going on in the chat. Let me, let me stop what I'm saying and read some of the chat for a minute. Um, resurrection. Uh, Mark asked about uh, dust returning. Good, we dealt with that in the Talmud. Is it only a tzaddik who does not experience envy? Uh, Don, a good question. I don't know, I can't, uh, as a non-tzaddik, I can't, I can't speak for, uh, um, I, 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 don't, I don't know anybody who doesn't experience envy. Um, Zahava says, that it come back to life, back to the body, they had in life, what condition is the body? Oh, excellent question. Zahava, that is discussed in the sources. It is not at the condition when they passed away, it is at, as a healthy, at a healthy age. Basically like a healthy middle age. Um, um, the dust, is an even greater miracle, exactly, but the question is why? Why, need, why get rid of the body if the body is still intact? Um, yes, we're healed and perfect. Good, excellent. All right, we're all caught up. So now we have Rabbi Zera. What happens, sorry, I just the chats are popping up and I'm trying to, to keep up with it as I'm talking. Um, okay, so back to, back, to the, back to the topic. So what's going on here is Rabbi Zera. Rabbi Zera moves from Babylonia to Jerusalem and he's got Talmudic wisdom under his belt. He's got information under his belt. And what happens? What happens is he fasts, a hundred fasts, in order to forget his learning. 
And the question is, the question that we're going to ask now is, doesn't make any sense. Why in the world would somebody fast to forget what they learned when they want to embark on new knowledge? That seems like a hindrance. They should be, they should, they should be, um, they should, they should be, um, hold on one second, one second. Um, okay, they should be um, building on what they're learning and not, and not the opposite. All right, folks, give me a second here. Um, okay, guys, you know, hold off on the chats for a second because it's popping up right now on my screen and it's just, uh, it, it's coming up a little bit intrusive on my, on my end. So hold, if you don't mind, hold off on the chats for, for a few minutes. Let's get through a little bit more material and then we can, we can open up to some questions. All right, so here's what's going on. Um, Rabbi Zaire is fasting and the question is, why is he fasting to forget information? We know that growth is about building on prior knowledge. Growth is about building on what you had. Right? Investment is about building on the investment. Why would you take away your investment and you're not going to build on it? This question is asked by none other than the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dober Schneerson, in text number three. Okay, I'm going to read this text. Here we go. The typical way of learning is that by studying one thing, a person then expands their knowledge and is able to comprehend ever greater things, progressing further from one level to the next. Right? That's how we learn. We learn by adding on to our knowledge. We scaffold, we build on top of prior knowledge. It's like building a tower. You build a foundation, then you build more, one level, the next level, the next level. Why then did Rabbi Zera need to forget everything? Why did he fast? Again, going back to the Talmudic story, he fasted 100 fasts so that he would forget, right? So that he would forget the Babylonian method of studying Talmud. Why would he fast to forget the Talmud if it's all about adding knowledge and adding additional knowledge? It's almost like somebody saying, you know, I was preparing for an investment. I was preparing to earn a really big return on my investment. So what did I do? I took out all my money. Doesn't make any sense. Why would you wipe away the investment if you're looking to add to the investment? It doesn't make sense. So it makes it very puzzling, and this is the question that we're at now. Why did he need to forget everything? So now let me pause, and let me take questions that you may have. All right, guys, jump in with any questions or comments. Questions, comments? Okay, I'm going to read the chat now. Uh, Marsha asks, what happened to the many who were gassed? Um, in other words, they were... Um, uh, they were, they, the bodies were burned in the crematoria, and it seems like there might not be a loose bone left. So my mother said, yes, loose bone was not destroyed even by cremation. Where, what is the loose bone again? Okay, so that was either the back of the neck, or like in the back of the, the nape of the neck, or the, the base of the spine. Two different opinions as to where the loose bone is. Now, but the question is, if, if it's reduced to ashes, literal ashes, then where is that loose bone? And um, the answer, the response is that we don't know the ways of God. We can't, based on our vision of what is or what is not remaining, we should not use our lack of perception to limit the ability of God to take even a piece of that loose bone and rebuild the body. In other words, it not, not necessarily does the whole loose bone have to remain, even a piece of it. And thus, who's to say that, uh, that there's nothing left of that loose bone 
um, in the earth or, or on earth. So that's the, that's the answer that's given. But we're right now at a different part of the class, which is an, an trying to explore Rabbi Zera's um, curious conduct. Rabbi Zera fasts to forget his studies. And the question that we're asking now is why fast to forget studies if you're trying to build on your studies? And this is a good question. In fact, it's such a good question that it leads us to challenge our preconceptions. You see, decent questions just require an answer, but really good questions, a really good question requires us to completely rethink the entire conversation. You know, when you hit a wall and you can't go any further, you can't go around it, you can't go over it, you have to start again. And so a really good question forces us to rethink everything. You see, the premise of, our, of this question that we just asked is that growth happens, we, we, we believe that growth happens by building upon what we already have. So, right, growth is building on what you have, so you don't want to take away your foundation because then you, you, can't, you can't build if you take the stuff away. Right? You can't build your investment if you pull everything out. You're not building your investment then. So Rabbi Zerah is moving to Israel. So he prays to forget everything. Gewalt, how are you building your knowledge like that? You're taking away your knowledge. But the truth is, the question is based on the premise of a certain model of growth. But in fact, this, that's only one type of model of growth. There are, in fact, though, two models of growth. Two general models of growth that I want to share with you right now. Method number one or model number one of growth is what we might call incremental growth or linear growth, incremental growth. And number two, the second type of growth, is what we might call quantum growth. There's incremental growth and quantum growth. What's the difference? What's the difference between the two? So let me break it down. So incremental growth is the type of growth that we focused on thus far. It's a linear process of building on what you have one step at a time. It's the process of natural measured evolution. So in the realm of numbers, let's use numbers and give an example. It would be starting with one and adding from there. You started off with one, then you went to two, then you went to three, then you went to four. The truth is, you can even do multiplication. You can even go exponential on this. It still works. You go one to two to four to eight to 16 to 32 to 64. Doesn't matter, you can go that way also. It still works. You're building on the numbers that you have. You're building one step by step, number after number. That's how you are doing it. That's what we call incremental growth. That's what we call linear growth. It's growth that is scaffolded. It's growth that's built upon that which is prior. And in that example that I gave with the numbers, whatever number you eventually get to, doesn't matter how big it is. It could be the biggest number you can imagine. It all is based on the foundational number one because that's where it came from. Are you with me on this? When it comes to exponential growth, yes, it, you started off with one, you doubled it, you doubled that, you doubled the next thing, you kept on doubling it, but ultimately it came from one. So no matter how big the number is, it's built on the number one. All of that is incremental growth. But quantum growth, what I'm calling quantum growth, is completely different. 
Quantum growth is not measured growth. It's not step-by-step. Step. It's not relative growth. It's not linear growth. Quantum growth is a radical shift of reality. It's like you're going from numbers to a Ferrari, right? It's like one, two, four, eight, 16, 32, Ferrari. It's like Ferrari, how does Ferrari follow? That's the quantum growth that we're speaking about. Where you go from something to something radically different, it's not built step by step on the original, it's a completely out of the box growth. To use a numbers example, it's like the, it's like the jump the greatest jump possible. You know what the great in numbers, you know what the greatest jump possible is? Give me two numbers. What, from one number to the other number, that constitutes the greatest jump possible. Give me two real numbers that you know. Zero to one. Zero to one is the answer. Correct, Mark. Zero to one. You know why that's the greatest jump? Because you can add zeros to each other, you can multiply zeros a, 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 infinite number of times, you will never hit the number one. Right? Zero plus zero plus zero plus zero, zero times, times anything. You do zero a thousand times, a million times, a trillion times, and you'll get zero. The jump from zero to one is infinitely greater than the jump of one to any other number that you can, that you can call out. Because it's a radical quantum leap. It's a radical shift. It's from nothing to something. It's from no number, no countable number at least, to a countable number. So how does, so I, let me just check in. Let me pause and check in. Two models of growth, does that, do they make sense? Yes? Yes? Measure growth or incremental growth and quantum growth? Yes? Okay, great. So here we go. Here we go. How does this happen? How does this type of growth actually transpire? You know, incremental growth is easy to figure out. You just add to what you have. Right? You, you, you start off with 100, you add 10. You start off with 110, or so, sorry, you start off with 100, you add 10%. Then you add 10% to that. We get it, there's incremental growth. You just grow based on what you have. But how do you get the quantum growth? How do you get to something completely different than what you have? How do you do that? Simple. If, if, um, if incremental growth is by adding, quantum growth is by subtracting. Quantum growth is not by adding to what you have. Quantum growth is by taking away what you have. And here's how I want to frame it. Think about the great revolutions that have happened in design in our lifetime. Think, for example, about Steve Jobs who's probably the most famous, maybe Elon Musk nowadays, but let's talk about Steve Jobs for a moment, right? Steve Jobs creating the iconic Apple products. How did Steve Jobs create the iPhone? I'm gonna give you a hint. He didn't take the Blackberry, remember Blackberry? Who remembers Blackberry, yeah? He didn't take the Blackberry and try to make it better. You know what he did? He tossed the Blackberry off his desk. That's what he did. 
Quantum growth happens not by building on what you have, but by getting rid of what you have. Quantum growth is not building on what was, it's eliminating what was. It's completely destroying what was. Not that he blew up all the blackberries in the world, right? But it's by completely doing away with getting rid of what was, abolishing the status quo to reach, to create, to achieve something radically new. Something radically new can only emerge when what you had is gone. One of my favorite quotes that I heard from one of my teachers, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, if you think what you thought and you say what you said and you do what you did, you'll have what you had. The same old. It's the same old thoughts, the same old speeches, the same old actions. It's the same old. You'll have what you had. If you want something different, you got to change. You got to change something. And change means you don't build on what you had. That's not change. That's building. That's incremental growth. That's not quantum growth. This explains the very strange behavior of Rabbi Zerah. Remember the rabbi who moved from Babylonia to Israel and he fasted to forget all the, all the Talmud that he had studied? Yeah, that explains his behavior as the Rebbe explains. I'm going to pull it up right now in text number four. All right, take a look at text number four. Um, let's ask, who are we going to ask? Mark, Mark Galt, please read text number four. The English begins, not the bio, right? That little, uh, like the italicized text. There are two approaches to study. One is in which the student progresses from simpler to more challenging material. At first, they study a simple matter and then something more. Challenge. <laughs> and greater their mastery of the simpler material, the more it will contribute to gaining mastery of the more challenging material. But then there is another, greater way a person can academically progress. Now, the manner in which progress is achieved in the first way mentioned above is only relevant when the two subject matters have relative value to one another. However, when they are categorically different from one another, and the more complex material is infinitely greater than the simpler one, not only will mastery of the simple, simpler matter not contribute to gaining mastery of the greater matter, it will actually only be a distraction. Thank you. You know, in science and physics, there's what we call classic physics or traditional physics and then quantum physics, right? Which is a completely different way of understanding the universe. Einstein struggled with this. I mean, the great, the great, the greats of the great, the great of the greats, the greats of the great, however you say it, they struggled with this. Um, how do you reconcile the two systems of science, the macro and the micro, right? Classic physics with quantum physics. But here's the problem. If you're trying to apply what you know in one system, it's going to hold you back from understanding what the reality in the new system. That's the way it works. The more tethered you are to one system, so within that system, that it's going to help you grow and learn more. But in a completely different system, it's actually going to hold you back. Because you're going to be stuck in a way of thinking that is simply not accurate in the new way of thinking. 
Make sense? Yeah? This is why adults don't get kids. Right? Typically. It's like adults will always say, what are you listening to? What kind of noise is that? When it comes to kids' music. Right? What's this Snapchat and TikTok and all this stuff? What are, you, what are y'all doing? Get off my lawn, waving the fist at the clouds. That's the way it works, right? Older generations don't get the youth. Why don't they get the youth? Very simple. They don't get the youth because every generation has its paradigm, its way of thinking, its way of doing things. And to be successful in your paradigm, you have to master your paradigm. But every generation brings with it, every new generation brings a new paradigm. And with the new paradigm come brand new rules. And you, would try, and you try to apply the old rules to a new paradigm, it's like putting a square peg in a round hole. It's not going to work. It's not going to fit. Not only is it not going to fit, it's going to be disruptive. Not disruptive in a good way, which is a word the kids like to use nowadays, but disruptive in a negative way. It's going to be a negative influence. Why? Because it doesn't fit. Paradigms don't fit. So what does this mean for us? Why, bottom line, why did Rabbi Zerah fast to forget the, Tal- the, the, Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud study? And the answer is, Rabbi Zerah fasted for one reason and one reason only. Because the Babylonian Talmud is radically different from the Jerusalem Talmud. Anything, anything that the Babylonian Talmud, the, sorry, not anything, the, the structure, the framework, the methodology of the Babylonian Talmud would necessarily harm and hinder his study of the Jerusalem Talmud. That's the way it was. Two completely different systems. Now you're probably wondering, how are they so radically different? And what is the difference between the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud? I have a text for that. But that's already getting in the weeds. That's already getting the details of how were they different. But I want to operate in the big idea. We're now presenting a huge idea. This is, and you'll see soon, this is a life-changing idea. Absolutely paradigm-shifting, life-changing idea. If you build on what you have, you'll have a larger version of what you have. If you build on the status quo, nothing will change. It'll just get a little bit bigger. Maybe a lot bigger. But a lot bigger of what? Of what you have. So you start with a Blackberry, you're going to get rounder buttons, you're going to get a little bit of a bigger screen, you'll get a scroll wheel this way, not that way, you'll get incremental growth. If you stick with the status quo, you'll stick in that box. How do you get out of the box? By throwing the box away. How do you get out of the box? By burning the box down to the ground. You say, we're not starting with this because this is going to limit us. We're starting with the possible. We're starting from scratch. We're starting with a blank sheet of paper. And we're starting to dream of what could be. Not based on what is, but based on the limits of our unfettered imagination. That's how great things are achieved. That's how great ideas are come upon. Not by sticking with what's already there, but by dreaming of what's not already there. And so Rabbi Zerah knew that when he was going to move to Israel and study the Jerusalem Talmud, he was going to encounter a methodology of study that is radically different than his prior study. 
And all he wanted was an opportunity to embrace fully the new paradigm. Holding on to his old way of thinking would necessarily hold him back. I know that we've all experienced this, this, experienced this in our lives. I know we've all had these experiences where we walk into a class, for example, and we hear something, and we're do the whole time what we're doing is trying to integrate it with what we already know, as opposed to being open to something that maybe we've never heard before. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to walk into a learning experience and let go of everything, all preconceptions, all preconceived notions. That's exactly what Rabbi Zaira did. He let go of preconceptions to fully embrace the new opportunity of study. This is what our next text will articulate beautifully. All right, this is text number five. The Rebbe explains the following. I'm going to read this. It's a long text. I'm going to read it. The study method of the Jerusalem Talmud is to reach a conclusion as soon as possible without too much discourse of rebuttals and answers. In other words, let me just say this in my own words, the Jerusalem Talmud is very straightforward. It's very much solution-oriented. It's like getting to the resolution as quickly as possible. The study method of the Babylonian Talmud, however, embraces broad discourse and many rebuttals and answers, and only thereafter does it finally reach a conclusion. Let me say that in my own words again. The Babylonian Talmud is all about the process, not about the destination. It's about the question, not the resolution. It's about exploring and asking and questioning and questioning the question. It's all about digging. It's not about resolving. In other words, let's continue inside. The disparity between the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmuds is not only in the content of their conclusions. In fact, many times they reach the same conclusion. It's not about the conclusion. The disparity is in their approach. In the Jerusalemite method, when the student learns a particular idea, he immediately finds a common thread that links it to another idea, thereby comparing many ideas alongside each other, solution-oriented. In the Babylonian method, when the, when the student learns something, he immediately looks for the whole, the question, why do we need a numbered list, for example, or why are the ideas arranged in this particular order and not a different order? For another example, after the student toils to come up with a good answer, he then asks further questions, and only after this elaborate process does he finally reach a conclusion. Some have called it the Socratic method. I don't think it's exactly the Socratic method, but nonetheless, it is about the question. Accordingly, the Talmud never meant that Rabbi Zera actually went ahead and erased the information he had learned in the Babylonian Talmud. Heaven forbid this suggestion. He didn't erase his knowledge. Rather, Rabbi Zerah fasted 100 fast to impact himself and change his very nature, his style of learning, to the Jerusalemite method. In other words, let me just, before I continue inside, in other words, he fasted so as not to be stuck in his prior methodology of study. Of course, to effect such change, it requires a good deal of work, like fasting 100 fasts. This is an observable truth. It is extremely difficult for people to change their nature and habits. And that last line, that summarizes life. This is our story. It is extremely difficult for people, that's you and I, we're people, right, to change their nature and habits. That is one of the most truest truths that you'll ever hear. We love the status quo. We love it. But if you stick with what you got, that's all you'll have. You want to go to something radically different? You gotta let go. This touches on one of the most profound Kabbalistic axioms in life. 
And that is to go from one state of being to a radically new state of being requires upheaval. You cannot gradually progress from one state of reality to a radically different state of reality. There is no easy movement from one state to another. If you want to move from one state to another state, it requires upheaval in the middle. We call this in Kabbalah, from yesh to yesh, there needs to be an ayin be'emtza. From one thing to another thing, there has to be nothing, a non-thing in the middle. Up. There has to be an erasure, a, 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 an erasure, a, a, um, a disintegration of that which was in order to have that which will be. Let me share my screen again and let's do another text. Take a look at text number six. I'm going to read this again. It's a long text. This is from, once again, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad. He says, it is impossible to advance from one level to an entirely greater one without an eraser in between, in a way that obliterates the memory and any of the pleasure of the first level. I'm going to tell you a story about this in a second. At that point, the person, once they've been erased, canceled. You want to call it canceled? Good. Once the person is canceled, they're ready to advance to the next level and experience the godly light to be had there. This is the rule. When the, high, when the higher level is categorically greater than the lower and there's no relative value between them. Of course, let me just parenthetically say, if you're just going from one to two, you don't need this radical, you don't have to uh, obliterate one and destroy one to get to two. No, you, one is two. But if you want to go from something to something completely different, that's when you need to get rid of what you had. For this reason, we find that wherever there is a situation of advancement from one level to a categorically greater one, there must be something blocking in between. This obstruction cancels the first level, here you go, cancels, to the point that it is completely forgotten and then it is possible to advance to the greater level. This is, look at the, the example that he gives. The soul experiences this when it, when it advances from the lower Gan Eden, the lower level of, the, of paradise in the afterlife, to the higher Gan Eden, to higher level paradise. Inasmuch as these two levels are categorically different from one another, the soul must immerse in what the Kabbalists call the Dinar River. It's called Nahar Dinar, the Dinar River. What's that? The purpose of this immersion is to erase the memory of the pleasure of the, the soul experienced in the lower Gan Eden, so that it will not obstruct the categorically greater levels of pleasure to be had in the higher Gan Eden. Essentially, even though the soul was already in paradise, and even though you're going from one level of paradise to another level of paradise. You say, all right, just take the elevator up. No, no elevator. You have to erase the memory of level one to get to, well, forget one, of this first level to get to this radically new level. Give you an example. Everyone here has a definition or has something that they translate as pleasure. In other words, Everyone here has something that they enjoy. Something, in fact, if you ask a person, say, what is the thing that you enjoy the most? What's the one thing you enjoy in life more than anything else? Everyone, I mean, the question is everyone's going to feel open and, and candid to answer, but everyone's gonna, everyone knows that answer for themselves, what that is. What do you enjoy the most? Some people it's this, some people it's that. Okay. Imagine person passes away and then goes to heaven. The soul goes to heaven, to paradise. 
And in par paradise is a pleasure, is an experience of pleasure. Imagine, imagine the uh, whoever's in charge, right? Ask the soul. So tell me. Today we're doing a um, a Priceline Ganadin. Name your own pleasure, right? Like Priceline is name your own price. Now it's name your own pleasure. So imagine that. So, right, imagine you, um, imagine you name your own, hold on, I'm looking at the chats again, let's see what's going on here in the chats. Einstein, paradigm, yes, different paradigm, did I have to create a different system, political revolution, okay. All right, let's keep polit political revolutions out of this. We're speaking more in other, in other terms. Okay, so let's, so let, but let's, let's, let's think about this, uh, this example. Imagine the soul comes to the afterlife. And the angel in charge, let's say there's an angel in charge because that's what they say in the jokes. An angel says, what do you want in your paradise? And the angel say, and the, the soul says, you know what I want? I like unlimited platters of sushi. That's what I like. The finest sushi in the land, that's what I want for all eternity. I want sushi. Imagine that. What would you say about that experience? Yeah? Is that a good idea or not a good idea? Not a good idea. Why is that not a good idea? Why is that not a good idea? Because that was pleasure for the body. And the soul has a completely different understanding of pleasure. So what has to happen? The soul has to go through a cathartic experience. It has to go through what we call Gehenim. You know what Gehenim is, right? For those that took the afterlife courses. Gehenim is purgatory. What is purgatory? Meloshan purge. It's about purging. It gets rid of the attachment that we have to the material so that the soul can enjoy a spiritual afterlife. Because otherwise, the soul is going to expect sushi. Can you imagine how terrible that paradise is? Imagine all the souls are getting true pleasure, spiritual pleasure. And this one soul that never got stuck is having sushi all day. Gewalt. It's ridiculous. Imagine how all the other souls would look at that soul and say, bro, grow up. You're still eating sushi? You're still loving sushi after all this time? That's what you're still into? You haven't yet evolved into a spiritual entity that has spiritual understandings of what pleasure is? You're still stuck on sushi? Come on. The Baal Shem Tev told a story about a fellow, a wagon driver. He did all the sins in the world. This guy, are you kidding me? He was the biggest sinner. But he did one thing. He did one thing. He saved a life. There was once a person who was stuck on the side of the road in a dangerous situation, and he rescued them. And when he went up to heaven after 120 years, the angel said, all right, listen, we would like to throw you, you know, in, in the negative place, but you did this wonderful thing, so we're going to give you paradise. So, so, um, so they say to this fellow, so what do you want as your paradise? Name your paradise. He says, here's what I want. I want a road, a paved road. Give me horses and a chariot with oiled wheels. And forever, I'm going to say whatever they say, giddy up or whatever it is. And, 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 and ride the chariot as a wagon driver for all eternity. And the Baal Shem Tov said, and that's what his Gan Eden is. That's what his paradise is. You want that paradise? You want a paradise of Tesla? Tesla paradise? 
or you want a spiritual paradise. But what has to happen? You have to forget the Tesla. You have to forget the sushi. You have to forget the horse and the wagon. Because if you remember that, if you're stuck on that, then you can't move away from that. A quantum leap means that you cut ties with the past. As long as you're holding on to the past, that's all you'll have. If you're holding on to the status quo for dear life, that's what you'll have. It's when you let go. It's when you cut ties that you can really move on. And that's what Rabbi Zerah did. He cut ties with the Babylonian Talmud. He didn't forget all the Torah that he studied. He cut ties with the methodology. Because it's only when you cut ties with the methodology that you can actually move on. As we just read in this text, that is what happens in the Dinar River. Why does it happen in a river? Because when you go into a river, like a mikvah, you immerse. And you immerse completely underwater. And in that experience, you lose all sense. You lose all sense of identity. You're part of, part of the water. And you emerge a new being. That's the symbolism in the Dinar River. So what do we have here? Just to make sure that no one's getting lost in the conversation. We have a discussion of Rabbi Zerah. Why did he fast to forget the, 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 the studies? We explained that there's two types of growth. Incremental growth and quantum growth. And incremental growth, yeah, you build on what you had. But quantum growth, you have to get, a, get rid of what you had. That's what he was doing. He was ready for quantum growth in his studies. And that's what he did. He, for, he fasted to forget his studies. I will tell you this. I will tell you this. One of the greatest hindrances of human achievement is the fact that we are so stuck in the status quo. One of the things that holds us back the most is that we can't let go of what we know. NASA did a creativity study. I'm going to share this with you. This is fascinating. I think you'll love this. Take a look at this. I'm going to read this. I don't know why it says exercise. It's not an exercise. In 1968, George Land conducted a research study to test the creativity of 1,600 children ranging from ages 3 to 5 who were enrolled in a Head Start program. This was the same creativity test he devised for NASA to help select innovative engineers and scientists. The assessment worked so well that he decided to try it on children. So again, he, de he originally devised a creativity test for NASA to figure out who was the best you know, creative minds in science. And then he decided to try it on children. He retested the same children at 10 years of age, and again, at 15 years of age, the results were astounding. You ready for this? The test results among five-year-olds, 98% showed that brilliant creativity. 10-year-olds, 30%. 15-year-olds, 12%. And for adults, 2% of adults had that level of creativity. Why? You know why? Because adults hold on to their stuff. That's why. And the more you hold on, the less creative you are. Because creativity means letting go of what you know to embrace an unknown possibility. And you know what? That's scary. That's scary. It ma it's making yourself vulnerable. It's making yourself vulnerable, and it's making, it's making things scary. It's making things, it, 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 it's, it's disrupting the status quo. It's scary. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with an understanding 
that it's when we let go that we can truly embrace that which is possible. As long as we're holding on, we're actually limiting ourselves. I'll give you one more example. This is an amazing example. This example deal it has to do with the advanced rocket boosters used on some of the most advanced technology out there. The most advanced and sophisticated machinery uses rocket boosters. Take a look at the following text that I'm going to share with you. It's, a, it's again, an, an, an excerpt from this. Space shuttle solid rocket boosters, known as SRBs, were limited in width to four feet, eight and a half inches wide. Again, the rocket boosters are, were four feet, eight and a half inches wide. Why? Okay, so here's why. The boosters were manufactured in Utah and were, were, to, were to be shipped to Kennedy Space Center here in Florida via rail. So the boosters wouldn't be, couldn't be any wider than the standard gauge railroads, which are four feet, eight and a half inches wide. So then the question is, why are they, why are the railroads four feet, eight and a half inches wide? At the, at the answer is that the advent of, of American rail, the rail infrastructure was built by English expatriates. And that's the width rails were built in the UK. Interesting, why is that? The first English railways were built by the same folks who built pre-railroad tramways. Those builders used the same jigs and rail, railway construction that they did in building the tram wagons. Okay, why were the tram wagons wheels, tr tram wagon wheels set at four feet and a half inches wide? So that they would fit in the ruts of the very old long distance roads, the ruts of those roads were just about four feet, eight and a half inches wide. Okay, why is that? Those first roads were built by and for the Roman Empire. After all, to expand the empire, they needed roads to transport soldiers and goods. Sure, but why did they, but did they build rutted roads? Of course not. Who would do such a thing? They traveled by horse-drawn chariot. All the chariots were made to the same specification. Their wheels wore the ruts into the roads. Ah, why were the chariot wheels spaced at four feet, eight and a half inches then? The chariot specs were designed for a chariot to be drawn by two horses. The width of the chariot's wheels needed to accommodate the widest part of the horses there behinds. The ruts just happened over time. That's right, the SRBs, right, these rocket boosters of the space shuttle were limited in size by decision thousands of years ago to mass produce the Roman Empire's chariots that would be drawn by two horses roughly four feet, eight and a half inches wide. My friends, you know what this means? The rocket design is based on the behind of horses. The average size of two horses, that is what determines today the width of the rocket boosters. You know what the rocket boosters are? Those big white things that go on the side of the rockets that allow it to boost up into the air? The size of the rockets are based on the horse's rears. It's crazy. But you talk about the status quo. Imagine if we weren't limited to the Roman Empire's chariots. Imagine if we could just build whatever we wanted based on what made sense and not what we had to fit into a certain paradigm. Who knows the technology that could have been created? Who knows? The whole thing is mashuga, right? But imagine if we weren't, imagine if we weren't operating based in the arbitrary limitations of the past. Imagine if you and I didn't operate within the arbitrary limitations of the past. That would be absolutely phenomenal. So what we've seen thus far is how what is, the status quo of that which is, can severely harm and detract from what can be.
And we've seen how true quantum growth happens only when we dare to eliminate what was. Great. Amazing. Beautiful. Very inspiring. But what does it have to do with the resurrection of the dead? And the answer is everything. You see, in the beginning of today's class, I asked the question. We presented a Zohar, a piece of Kabbalah, presented a piece of Talmud that stated that even those who are alive will have to pass away before the resurrection of the dead. And even those whose bodies did not decompose prior need to decompose prior to the resurrection of the dead. And we asked why. Why must there be a taste of death before being resurrected? Why those bodies who are intact, why must they decay before the resurrection? My friends, by now, you and I know the answer. The resurrection of the dead is not just another stage in the progression of mankind and the world. No, it's a radically new era. It, resurrection is a quantum leap. It's a paradigm shift. It's completely beyond anything that has happened prior. And the only way to get from one status of being, one state of being, to a radically new state of being is by eliminating the past. So those who are alive will need to die to be eliminated on some level in order to be reborn in a completely new reality. You see, if the person who was, who was alive at the time of the resurrection just keeps on living, there's no way to go incrementally from one state of reality to the state of the resurrection of the dead, that reality, that messianic reality. It's a completely different reality. There has to be a disruption in between, which is why even those who are alive will have to taste death and then be resurrected. Even those bodies who never decomposed will have to decay and be eliminated on some level. I know that the loose bone, yes, the loose bone remains, or there's a piece of that remains, but the majority, right, the rest of it, the vast majority of the body needs to disintegrate and then to be reborn into a brand new status. I'll give you an example. It's like you plant a seed in the ground. What happens to the seed? It grows into a tree. If you're lucky, right? If you plant a, 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 a seed of a, of a fruit tree right into the ground, it grows into a tree. How does it work? How does it happen? Not by the seed getting bigger. If you put the seed in the ground and you water it and the seed will get bigger and bigger and bigger, you know what you would have at the end? A very large seed. That's what you would have. You would have a very big seed. But it's not about having a big seed. It's about having a tree. How do you go from a seed to a tree? The seed has to disintegrate. The seed has to lose its identity. It has to become one with the earth. And then, after that decomposition, it could become something completely different. It could become a tree. As long as the seed holds on to itself, can't be that new reality. As long as a person would hold on to their identity, they could never be part of that era of Mashiach, that messianic era of the resurrection. It's only by tasting death it's only by tasting decomposition that the person can truly shift into that new era of reality. The ideas that we spoke about today are not only relevant. Let me, before I continue, let me just take any questions or comments thus far. Jump in. Questions or comments on what we explained. Does it make, is it clear why there has to be death before resurrection for everybody? Yes? Yes. Paradigm shift? Okay, good. Questions or comments? Yes, Rafa. Yes, Morris. 
Is there any significance to 100 fast, the number of 100? That's a really good question. I, I'm sure that the commentaries discuss it. I don't know offhand the answer to that. That's a really good question. Why 100 fast and not 50? Um, I mean, you could say that 100 is like a whole number. It's like 10 times 10, 10 dimensions of the soul, each one composed of another 10, of, of each of the 10 qualities. 10 times 10 is 100. So it's like every, every fiber of their energies of the 10 spherode energy. I'm like a, mixing a Kabbalistic concept with this. Maybe every element of the fiber of that person is, uh, is, is having that experience, possibly. I don't know. <coughs> it's a good question. There might be a simpler answer. That, that's uh, an answer that I, that I can think of from a, a bit of a mystical dimension. Any other questions or comments? I, I have a, a little question. <coughs> yes. So, he, so you're not saying that you have to, so on the one hand, you're not saying that you have to eliminate the previous, um, under the previous structure because you're saying that the rabbi did not eliminate the previous structure. Although it says he did, but he really, in actuality, didn't. So I'm a little bit... No, so what the Rebbe clarified is he didn't fast to forget his learning. He fasted to forget the framework of the studies. You see, you see the difference? Right? The difference is... Yes, I see the difference. In other words, is it forgetting the learning, forgetting the information? Or is it changing the methodology of the study, the way the mind thinks, which is obviously more critical than what the mind knows? Because what the mind knows is, is, is a detail of how the mind thinks. So the point is that this was a process of changing, of, of losing an attachment to a way of thinking. You see, here's the problem in life. In life, we think a certain way. And what happens because of that is that every new information that comes to us, we still think about it in the same way. So it's like... It all turns out the same color as, as before. Everything just becomes the same thing. It's just the same information again and again. Any new information that's put into the system, the system does to it the same thing it does to all information. And it, 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 it interprets it and converts it the same way. The whole point is that the Talmud Bavli and Yerushalmi, the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud, have a different way of thinking, a different way of processing the information. And so what he did was he fasted to, forget, to, to lose, to let go of, right? not to forget, to let go of, his previous way of thinking, so that he could think in a new way, because so he was excited. About the structure. Correct. The structure, right? Which is which is losing the structure. Okay. It's eliminating, disintegrating the structure. To so, get to a new structure, it has to be disintegrated, because so, if you can't build on that structure to get a new structure. So that's why the body will have to lose its structure. Correct. So the body loses its structure and decomposition. Life loses its life in the rest, time of the resurrection. Those that, have, those that are alive will pass away. Right? It has to be that way. Why does it have to be? Because you can't, you can't just ascend one more step to get to the resurrection of the dead. That's not how it works. It's a radically new reality. And for a radically new reality, you got to get rid of what you had and step into something brand new. So All right. But it won't be for a long time if the people are still alive. Um, no, the Talmud says, let me bring it up for myself. I'm not going to share it again. The Talmud says, um, no, I'm sorry, the Zohar. We had it in the Zohar before. The Zohar said um, in our first text, um, God will get, um, concerning all those who have not yet tasted death, 
God will give them a taste and immediately revive them. Because to undo a system, how long does it have to be undone for? A moment, right? You just hit delete and you can re- and, and then you start again from scratch. It doesn't need to be a long process, certainly not with God. So it just, it just requires an ayin, an absence in the middle in order for it to be rebuilt off of that. All right, let's, let's conclude the class and hopefully walk away with some powerful lessons. So the ideas that we explored in today's session are not only relevant to the future resurrection of the dead, maybe speaking in our days, but they're relevant to our lives right here, right now. All of us, I would venture to say, all of us are stuck in something. Whether it's a job that's not the way we want it to be, a relationship that's not the way we want it to be, or a spiritual limitation that we don't like having, right? Some sort of limitation in our spiritual relationship with God. There's something that each and every one of us is stuck in. And the message for us that emerges from today's class is that sometimes... In order to achieve what we can be, in order to rise to the level that we want to be, we need to eliminate what is currently. It takes guts. It takes a lot of faith in God also to make bold moves. But that's how real radical growth happens. So practically, let's talk about our spiritual growth for a moment. I mean, if we're talking about jobs, if, this, if, if, our, if our end game was about jobs, it might be if you're in a job that you don't love, stop trying to make it work, right? Again, this is not job advice right now. But again, theoretically, one would say, sometimes, call it quits, blank slate, and now you can dream. One might say that. But I want to I focus on, I'm a rabbi, I'm not a job, uh, I'm not an, um, my, my forte is not job advice. So I want to give you some spiritual advice. And what's the spiritual advice? Let's not be afraid to abandon what we're used to in order to embrace a mitzvah that we're not yet, perhaps, we don't feel that we're perhaps ready for. We have a hesitation. I'm not comfortable with it. I don't understand it. I never did it. But all of that is defining ourselves by the past. If we eliminate the past, brand new blank slate, we can step into something Brand new, a mitzvah. Let's not be afraid, another example, to open ourselves up to think differently when it comes to Torah study. I, meant, I did mention this before. When it comes to Torah study, we all bring in, I'm going to use the word baggage, we all bring in ideas and questions and confusions. We all bring it into the topic so that you know, it becomes a bit of a challenge. What would be if we, like Reb Zera said, blank slate, I'm not bringing any baggage, let me just be open to what the Torah says. It could be transformative. The rule of thumb is when we're comfortable, we're not growing. And when it hurts like crazy, that's typically where the growth is. One final point as we close out this class and we close out the series. We find ourselves today, just a few days before the ninth day of Av, known in Hebrew as Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. And what is the ninth of Av? It's the day that both holy temples were destroyed many, many years ago. These are days of mourning. They're days of sadness. They're fast days as well. And it's, it makes a lot of sense why these are days of sadness. But the Jewish mystics open our eyes to a brand new reality that fits perfectly with what we discussed tonight. You see, Mashiach is a radically new world. And the third holy temple 
will be a radically new type of, 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 of edifice. It will not be a temporary structure, a mortal structure. It will be an eternal divine structure. So how do you go from a temple built by Solomon, by Ezra? How do you go from a human-built temple to a radically new type of temple? You know how you do it? You blow up the first one. I don't mean literally. But you get rid of the first one. Demo. You demolish the first one. This is the deeper reason for the temple's destruction. It's not so much a punishment. Yes, I know what it says in the, in, in the, in the, um, in the prayers. Because of our sins, we were exiled from our land. Yeah, that's what it says in the books. But you know what the Kabbalists say? You've got to love the Kabbalists. The Kabbalists say it's very simple. You want to build the real temple? You've got to clear the ground. Why was the temple destroyed? To build God's real temple, the third eternal temple. You've got to get rid of what was to have what will be. If you want to just add an addition, a second story, you don't have to tear it down. But if you want something radically different, demo day. You got to demolish. HGTV, it's time for demo, demolition. So in order to get a, radical new, a radically new temple, you got to destroy the first one. It's not so much a punishment as it is a clearing of the old to pave the way for the new, which means... For you and I, this time of year, that even in our sorrow, as we mourn the loss of the temple, we must be hopeful for what is yet to come. Knowing that loss must always precede growth goes a long way in ensuring that we stay focused on the end game. And where our attention, and when our attention is where it should be, then we will get the job done. We will bring Mashiach and usher in that perfect world, and we will merit to experience the resurrection of the dead and the reunion with all of those whom we've loved and lost. And then we will enjoy a radical new world for good. May it be speedily in our days and let us say, Amen. I want to thank all of you for joining me over these last three weeks for this course, Resurrection of the Dead. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you gained a lot from it. Um, I know that I've been enriched by this experience of studying together with you. And I hope this has inspired you not only for what to look forward to, but how to shift our lives today and see things perhaps through a bit of a different lens. All right, a few quick announcements before we close it out. Uh, and we can open up to some discussion as well. But a few quick announcements that are very timely. Number one, as I mentioned a moment ago, the 9th of Av is approaching. My pleasure. The 9th of Av is approaching. And um, it is, until Mashiach comes, it is a day of mourning and a day of sadness. So the 9th of Av begins Saturday night and concludes Sunday night. It's a 25-hour fast. It's kind of like Yom Kippur. It's a fast that begins in the evening one day and concludes the evening of the follow following day. In Atlanta, don't quote me on these times, it's something like 8.37 that, um, that, the, that, the, that the fast begins and it ends the next night, Sunday night at about 9.17 or something like that. So, Whatever the times are, you can consult your local Jewish calendar. But typically, the, uh, the custom is that we finish, eat, we don't, we do not, even though it's still Shabbat, Shabbat does not end until a little bit later here in Atlanta, until after 9, we, we stop eating a little bit before that, even on Shabbat, we stop eating, and uh, we go into the 9th of Av. Um, when Shabbat concludes, we take off our leather shoes, we wear not leather shoes, and we head into the fast. Um, here at Chabad in town, 
and in town Jewish Academy in Atlanta. We have services Saturday night, I believe starting at 9.45 p.m. Because um, Shabbat ends, Shabbat ends around, oh, what time is it? I think 9.30-ish, maybe right before 9.30. Again, don't quote me on the times here. I'm, I'm operating by memory. Um, but we're going to start the evening service at 9.45 and go into the reading of the book of Eicha, the book of Lamentations. The next morning, Sunday morning, we'll have services at 10 o'clock in the morning, followed by a reading of the kinos, of the, the prayers of supplication for the day. We'll have Mincha at approximately 7.35, I think, on Sunday evening, um, followed by a video presentation. So we have a, actually a video presentation Saturday night, a documentary called The Accountant of Auschwitz. And Sunday night, we have a, doc, we have a special video presentation with Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, where they, when they burn books, they will ultimately burn people. So it's about the burning of the Book of Echa, the Book of Lamentations, that happened um, many, many years ago. A very compelling story and appropriate for the day. So that's about Tishabov. Another quick, few quick announcements. We have the return of our Jewish summer cinema. It's uh, kicking back off on Sunday. I believe the date is July 25th. Check our website, Intown Jewish Academy, for that. We have three more dates of movies on Sunday evenings. It is a fantastic experience. We got a massive, huge screen. Um, right next to the Batline, out, Batline Outdoors, great food, great conversation, great films, independent Jewish films. It's a great experience, so join us for those dates. Check the website. We have, just announced today, um, our Summer Southern Barbecue. Think a barbecue with all the fixins, and that is happening Sunday, August 1st, in celebration of the fact that we're all here, right? The fact that we're here, we survive this, we're surviving this as it goes on, outdoors, right off the belt line, behind Chabad, behind the, the building over here. It is going to be our backyard summer southern barbecue blowout experience, 5 p.m. on August 1st. That's a Sunday. We also have a very special evening called the Art of the Hebrew Letter. It's an evening of, uh, it's a workshop, it's a scribal workshop from a, with a local Jewish scribe. We have also a high holiday boot camp coming up and so many more things. Check the website in town jewishacademy.org. Thank you, Mark. Cinema is July 25th, August 8th, and August 25th. I picked these films. They are fantastic films. The first one is about the Fiddler on the Roof. The second one is called, now, now you would think I would remember the names. The second one is called um, Shoelaces, I believe. And the third film is called the third film is called, I don't know. That's not what it's called. Um, all right, somebody has the website open. IntownJewishAcademy.org. It's right there on the homepage. Summer Cinema. We have, yes, Fiddler, Miracle of Miracles, Shoelaces, oh, and Geula, Redemption. Oh, perfect for tonight's conversation. The third film is called Redemption. It's a fascinating film. These independent Israeli films are really beautiful. They're gorgeous, very sentimental, very meaningful. You can watch the trailers on our website and get a taste of what it's all about. All right, my friends, um, I think that is, I think that is it. Um, uh, just taking a quick look here. Thank you all. Thank you all for the comments. Appreciate it. All right, any other comments or questions before we close it out? No? All right, I want to wish everybody Laila Tov, good evening, and we'll see you soon. Take care, everybody.
Bye, Bye all. Good night.